You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, we are in Malachi chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, how does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? You may be seated. My encouragement to you is that if you have a Bible that you'll open to Malachi chapter 2, if you don't, that you'll grab one of those Bibles in the chair beneath you. If you don't have a Bible at home, take it home with you. There's also Bibles in the at the welcome, set, <clears throat> welcome desk that we would be happy for you to go home with. Uh, also, you know, I, I always forget to introduce myself because most of you know me. Some of you are visiting. My name's Keith. I'm the lead pastor at Meadowbrook. If you could let us know how you found out about us, you could tear off this little piece of the bulletin and put it in the box on your way out. Also, if we can pray for you, let us know how we can do that. This is, this is a heavy passage. I was, last week was heavy. This week is, is, is also heavy, and I get it. Uh, here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. This is a, there's a lot to cover in this passage, but as we get towards the end of this, uh, I, I do think that you'll be helped. I do think that you'll be encouraged. It, it's tempting that when you hear a passage like this or read a passage like this, if you're if you're in this room, statistically speaking, and most likely you are in this room, you've experienced a divorce, maybe you've pursued a divorce, maybe you're the receiving end of a divorce, um, hang on. I think you'll be encouraged by the end of this sermon. I also want to say I have three points, but my first point is the big one. I just want to focus on who God is, who it is that we claim to be our Father. Like, I'm just curious, like if you're in this room, how many of you would consider God, the God of all creation, your heavenly Father? Right, so just about all of you. So I want to focus on that. That will set the, uh, uh, the foundation 
for my final two points. Jesus was asked a question. I found it ironic that my, my Sifu, Richard Dean, who spoke at the men's breakfast, actually highlighted this, this passage in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus was asked the question, uh, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Jesus' answer can be summarized in seven words. Love God and also love your neighbor. And um, how you, just to set the stage for this, how healthy your relationship is with God vertically will reveal itself in your horizontal relationships with one another. Think about that. The, the, the love that you have for God is seen through the way you treat one another and your neighbor. This is why, like in the 50s and 60s, for those people that will go to church every Sunday, and, but considered... Um, uh, bl- black people or people of color as secondary didn't know God. <laughs> they didn't know God the way they should have known God. It was a great sin. This is why racism comes straight from the pit of hell. Any, 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 any time you would demean or diminish a person's value based on the, their, their ethnicity, their culture, or the color of their skin, that's straight from the pit of hell. And, and, and so Jesus said, okay, so uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, your whole being, and the second commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, Pharisees, <laughs> Sadducees, teachers of the law, who view everybody outside of, outside of the Hebrew people as secondary people. Seven words, love God and love your neighbor. And there are strong things that, that the Bible says concerning those who claim to know God and do not love and do not love their neighbor. In fact, uh, I'll look at this a little later in the pa- in, in our time together. But but read First John sometime. You you cannot say that you know God and hate your brother at the same time. If you hate your brother, you do not know God. <laughs> that's First John. That's not Pastor Keith Miller. And so, um, the the way the people were treating each other in Malachi, and again, the priests are still being singled out here, but it, but it was true of, especially of the men who claimed to know God, claimed to call God, their, uh, identify God as their heavenly father, were mistreating not only one another, but, uh, but were, were mistreating their spouses, were mistreating their wives. And, and so, as we already saw, we get to the place in verse 13 where, where God says to them, or, or Malachi speaks on behalf of God, he says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with tears, um, or accepts it with favor from your hand. I, when I do premarital counseling, I, and some of you have actually been through premarital counseling in this room with me, one of the things that I will share during those four sessions that we have together is I speak to the guy. 
We, we spent a little time in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I highlight verse 7, that husbands, if you do not live with your wives in an understanding way, God will not hear your prayers. So this thing in Malachi, what God tells these men, you, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. That's not just an Old Testament thing, that's a New Testament thing. The way you treat one another will affect whether or not God will hear your prayers, especially your wife, men. <laughs> uh, so, you ever thought about that? Like, why is it that there is this, that there's a, this reminder in Scripture for men to love their wives? But it seems like the wives do not need that reminder. Right? <laughs> Some of you are like, amen, brother. Preach it. Um, <laughs> especially the women. <laughs> uh, so I, I have three points. The first is this. Is, is, and the, this is the solution. This is, this is the... Um, this is the solution to this problem and how we treat one another. And the first is this, to know God as your father. Know God as your father. Like, not just head knowledge, but know him as your father. A.W. Tozer said this. I quoted A.W. Tozer a bunch of times throughout the years that I've been pastoring. And this quote continues to haunt me in a good way. He said this, and, and it will be on the screen. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let that settle on your heart for a moment. A.W. Tozer was a pastor. He was a prayer warrior. It said that he would spend uh, about half his day on his face praying before he'd even get to sermon preparation or visiting with people. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And you can see that what's happening right now in the Middle East. Like there are horrific videos of members of Hamas kidnapping or taking women and, and children and shooting people in the street in the name of Allah. A person's understanding of who God is will, will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. So, so who's this God that we identify as Father? I mean, all of you, just about all of you said, yeah, God is my Father. Who, who is he? You know, have, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? He made us in His image. Spoke the galaxies into existence. In, in, in five days, he, he created just about everything. On the sixth day, He created man in His image. Man and woman, He created them in His image. Like, think about what that means. Like, if you're a Christian, then our Father is the Creator God who spoke the galaxies into existence. Like, he, he spoke it into existence. He, he didn't labor it into existence. He, he didn't like, work really hard so that it would come into existence. We're simply told in Genesis chapter 1, he spoke and then it existed. This is the God who is our Father. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you are a true Christian in this room, he is your heavenly Father. Our Father is Elion. He, he's the most high God. 
there, there is no God like him. There is no God above him. He is the God who sees. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. He sees our circumstances. He sees the, the things that are going on in our life. Like, listen, <laughs> what happened yesterday didn't take God by surprise. He wasn't like, he, he didn't like take a break and then kind of return back to the throne of glory and say, whoops, I missed that one. Like, he is the God who sees. He is El Shaddai, which means the all-sufficient one. He nurtures, he nurtures his people. He provides for them. He cannot be outdone. He is able to do what he says he will do. This is why prayer is so important. In our churches and in this one as well, and I'm pointing the finger, I'm pointing most of my fingers at myself, um, like we rely on programs, pragmatic approaches to, 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 to see lives changed when the reality is, is that only God changes lives. He takes his word and the power of his spirit and he does something that only God is able to do. In Genesis 1, God spoke. We're told that the, 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 the spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep and all things were created as a result. He's the God who sees. He's the all-sufficient one. He is Yahweh. That's his, like, that's his covenant name. That's his, that's his most personal name to identify himself. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is faithful when we are faithless. Like, he is our Heavenly Father. I said last week, and I, I think it was last week or the week before, and I, I think it surprised some of you, I said, I said this. I said, before God was uh, creator, he was Father. That's a Trinitarian statement, by the way. Just doing that a little bit, lose a little sleep over that one. But like, like he, he is Father. He is Father. He is Yahweh. He's the covenant-keeping God. He is, he is the one who provides for his children. Yahweh Jireh. He is, he is the one who heals his children. He is the banner of his people, the one that we can find our identity in, the one who gives us purpose and meaning. I was, Richard and I were sitting, having lunch together after the men's breakfast because, you know, we like to eat. Um, so eat a lot of food for men's breakfast. And then, hey, let's go, to, let's go someplace else and eat um, and talk. And then after that, let's get coffee because we want to go into a comatose deep sleep. Um, so we were, we were talking about this. And like... like this God, who is Yahweh, he, he, we can call him Father. And that, and that because he created us in his image, that's where our purpose and identity come from. Like, listen, the person sitting next to you, that's not your identity. And some of you have been married a long time, you're like, inside you're saying amen, right? Like, amen, brother, yeah, <laughs> took a while for me to get to learn that lesson but um like that's not your identity the person sitting next to you is not the greatest reality that you will ever experience in your life if that's what you think you will be disappointed god made us in his image our purpose is rooted in him you want to know why you you know joy seems to have been fleeting for you why every pursuit of joy and happiness and satisfaction and pleasure has been fleeting it's because you've been running from god to other things he is where our, our, our identity comes from. He is our banner. He is uh, he's the one who sanctifies. 
This process, like when you become a, a, a Christian, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I've said this a whole bunch of times, I'll say it again, that God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will shatter your idols. And if he has to wreck your world to do that, he'll do it. But he, he, he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And this process, which for some people it seems like, uh, you know, it seems like a sprint right out of the gate from conversion. For other people, it's, it's slower. It's a slow, meticulous process. Uh, but, but the reality is that God is doing this work in your life. He's changing you. He's molding you. He's shaping you. He's bringing things to mind where you're saying, okay, now it's time to deal with this. And then five years from now, he'll, he'll bring something else to mind and say, now it's time to deal with that. I, I wrote in the e-letter that this book that I'm reading, um, A Praying Church, I wish I read it 20 years ago uh, before I stepped into the, my, the first, for the first time the role of a, of a lead pastor. It's 20 years later. I'm like, I'm sharing this with the elders. Like 20 years later, and I'm, I'm all of a sudden haunted by that verse in, in Acts chapter 6 that the, that the apostles were set aside for the preaching of the word and, to pray, and for prayer. He's doing this work in our lives. He's changing us. He's molding us because he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He, he's a refuge. I mean, well, one, he's our peace. He, he's our peace. And he's also our refuge and a fortress for those who find their their rest in him for those who find their their security in him he is our father and our good shepherd and when we find ourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death he is there he is there there's another name i came across um i don't know about this but i was just thinking about this in jeremiah 23 verses 5 through 6 i want to show this to you this is this is pretty cool um you're wondering like if you're, if you're just filled with all kinds of anxiety about what's happening in Israel right now, if you're filled with all kinds of anxiety because Russia just threatened this week that he's going to blow up a bunch of NATO countries with nukes, um, let this settle your heart for, for, for a moment. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who's that? That's Jesus and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness, should be capital L-O-R-D. The Yahweh our righteousness. Who is Yahweh our righteousness? This righteous branch of David that's coming. Who's that? Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember, I, taught, I, I began early, at the beginning of my sermon last week, he is the first and the last. He's the living one. Behold, he was dead, and now he's alive forevermore. He has the keys of death and Hades. Who else has the keys of death and Hades? The answer is no one. <laughs> no one. Jesus does. He, he is Jesus, and he's coming. He's coming, which leads me to just a foreshadow. I just want to give you, what do you call that in the movies where you kind of get a hint that something really good is coming? Foreshadowing? Uh, foreshadowing right now with my sermon. It's sermon's next week. But I'll, I'll address Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But look at it. Look at it in your Bible. If you have a Bible, um, it will be on the screen too. But it says, Behold, like, like, how am I? How is Yahweh going to reconcile and 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 fix this mess that's true of these priests, 
that's true of, uh, of us in many respects. How is he going to do it? Behold, I send my messenger. Who is his messenger? Come on. We're almost Advent time now, right? It's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. Behold, I, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Amen? Like, he's coming. He's coming. Like, this, this Lord our righteousness is coming. He's coming. And what I love about, and I'm, I'm kind of getting into next week's sermon, but what I love about verse 1 of chapter 3 is that this messenger is preparing the way. What does a messenger do to prepare the way? All that is in the road that, that would be before the king, the trees, the stumps, the weeds, the rocks, the people, the armies, he, he, all of that's going to be cleared out because the king of kings is coming. He's coming. And he will fix our mess. He will fix our mess. This is why I wanted to just camp on the reality that God is our Father. He is our Father. And what, and what does that really mean? It means that he is our everything. He is our everything. And look, look at the person next to you. Good. Just, now look at the person on the other side. Because some of you looked at your spouse like, yeah, I, I love you. Now, the, and then you're looking at the person on the other side like, I don't even know you. Um, like, each person on each side of you is created in the image of of God Almighty. And, and judging based on all the hands that went up this, this morning, as to those of you who have said you placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you know that God is your Heavenly Father, look, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The bond that we share is, is stronger than blood. We will spend all of eternity with one another. And so, so these priests, they, they didn't really get that. These men, they didn't really get that. And, and so this is why in verse 10 we get the question, why then? Like, if you say God is your Father and you understand that He's created us in His image, then why, why are you, are, are you faithless to one another profaning the covenant of our fathers? How is it that you can call God Father and treat one another the way you're treating one another? Cheating one another and and the way you treat your, you know, the women, you know, who are surrounding you, or or the wife, your wife, or like, how can you say that you know him as father and treat these people the way that you're treating them? And for us, the church, like I'm reading a book called the D Church, like one of the great things, the the one of the great religious movements that's happening in our nation right now. Which is, uh, which is this, is that 40 million Christians who used to go to church decided there's no place in their lives for church. And that's happened within the last 25 years. In the even, among evangelicals, 60, let, let this haunt you, 68%, 68% of de-churched people who identify as evangelical Christians said the, that one of the factors for them leaving the church had to do with their parents. You want to know why? 
Because mom and dad say, well, we're going to church. We believe this book. But the children weren't seeing it at home. They weren't seeing the evidence of the resurrection in the, the lives of their parents. All they heard was lip service. This is what's going on here. This is why God is so put off by the way these people are treating one another, and especially the way the men were treating their wives. And, he, and so he said, I, I, don't even reg- I, I, don't t- I take no pleasure when you come to the altar and you worship me. I, I, I don't even listen to you now. And for the Christian, I mean, you think about what it means to be a Christian. We have been, we've been blood-bought by the blood of the Lamb. He went to the cross in our place for our sins. This righteous branch from David. And, and, and because he did that, and the evidence that, that what he did on the cross is, is, is seen in the resurrection, that, the, that what he did on the cross is legit, was legit, that you can trust that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Because of the empty tomb. And what does the Bible say about us? It says this, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, just before that one verse I just read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, let's go, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In this book that I'm reading, Praying Church, I came across this quote, and um, I, I want you to see it, but I also want you to hear it. Richard Gaffin, who's quoted by Paul Miller. Paul Miller wrote the book. I totally, I so recommend the book to you. He said, um, he said this, at the core of our being, he's speaking about the Christian, at the core of our being, in the deepest recesses of what they are, Who's the they? We, Christians. What they are. In other words, in the inner self, believers, listen, believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. If you're a Christian in this room, when it comes to your inner being, I'm not talking about physical resurrection, I'm talking about what God has done in your life, you will never be, you will never be more resurrected than you already are. You've heard me say this. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's not about you getting more of the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit you could possibly ever need. It's about the Holy Spirit getting more of your heart. You want to know why your life is slow and change or why, why you keep making a mess of your life? Because you're not yielding to Him. But if you're a Christian, you have all the resurrection that you possibly could have received. That's what it means to be a new creation. He goes on to say, so God has done a work in each believer, a work of nothing less than resurrection proportions that will not, listen, that will not be undone. I love that. Such language is not, a metaphor, is not just a metaphor. Like, Christian, you will never be more resurrected at the core of your inner self than you already are. Now, this process of sanctification, that's God doing that work in you. But in terms of being new in him, being alive in him, you're alive. You are alive in Christ, which leads me to my second point. These are quick ones, by the way, so just, just so you know. <laughs> um, recognize the bond that you share with God's people. You know, so, so know God as your father. 
recognize the bond that you share with God's people. Like, God has done a work in your life. You know what happened to Jesus when he was in the tomb? Like, when he was dead, like, we all know that, right? But in order for the resurrection to happen, do you know what had to happen? His DNA needed to change. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, his cells were dead. Rigor mortis was already set in. He was dead. How dead is dead? Dead, right? So in order for a resurrection to happen, you know what needs to happen? A change in the DNA has to happen. Listen, if you're a Christian, you know what's happened to you? Your DNA has changed. You're alive in Christ. You were dead, and now you're alive in him. Just read Ephesians chapter 2 sometime. And so all the, all the resurrection you could possibly experience has happened in your inner being. And God is doing this work in you. And, and as you change, we're starting to see that. The evidence, the evidence that you've been born again is the power of the resurrection in your life. Right? And so, um, so, so Malachi continues. And this is something that these men didn't, didn't recognize or didn't know. He says, when, in verse 10, when then are you, or not verse 10, it's, um, I don't know what verse that is. But anyway, when then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and, and Jerusalem. Well, what is that abomination? The way that you, not only the way you're treating one another, but here. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. I, I could preach a whole sermon on this. I preached on divorce and remarriage and what happens like when you're in an abusive relationship, when I did the whole sermon on the Mount series, I'd encourage you, actually all those sermons are on our new website. You should, you should check those out. I don't have time to go into you know, divorce, remarriage, and all that stuff. I just want you to see what's in the text here. Um, God is saying, look, <laughs> what are you doing? And, uh, I mean, the priests were, were, they were familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 7, which says, you shall not intermarry with them. With who? The daughters of foreign nations. What daughters of foreign nations? Well, specifically, the daughters who worship other gods. Why would you do that? Well, why would you take on it? Why would you enter into a marriage with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Or, in this case, that doesn't know God as Father? Because you know what you're going to do? For the, for until that person's life changes, and believe me, it's much harder for that person's life to change than it is for your life to, to change if you're a Christian who has entered into um, a marriage with an unbeliever. You will, look le you will feel that tug. As long as that person doesn't know Jesus, you will continue to feel the tug to move in an opposite direction than what Jesus is walking. And so it, it will be an ongoing point of contention in your marriage if you truly love God and truly love Jesus. I'm just warning you, for those of you who are single, God doesn't believe in missionary dating. Right? Like, I'm going to be with this person and I know they don't believe right now, but I'll win them over to Jesus. No, you won't. It's rare. I, my friend Frida, and sometimes it happens. <laughs> Some of you are a testament to that. Like God, it's not impossible for God to do the impossible. Right? But I have a friend, Frida. She's the third person who I promised I would officiate her, her funeral. And she, she's alive. And her husband does not believe in Jesus. And it has been one of the, the crushing things of her heart throughout the years. 
And so God is rebuking these, these, these men and like, why would you do that? Why, why would you take on women who worship another God? Don't you remember Solomon and what that did to him? I mean, hello, the exile happened because Solomon took on a bunch of women who, who as wise as a political statement, and he wound up worshiping their gods. He set up their idols, and, and things became a big mess. Read, read um, Ecclesiastes sometime. He's like, I mean, it's a depressing book, but he finally gets to the end of it, and he says, you know what I've learned over the years? When, 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 when all's said and done, to love God and keep his commandments. That's what I've learned. Um, if, God is God, if God is God and he is a father to you, when you enter into this covenant of marriage, Find someone who loves God. And if you don't find that person, listen, um, it's mar- this is premarital counseling for you, ready? If you don't find that, if you're single and, you, and you've not found that person yet, don't rush to find somebody to spend a lifetime with that you will spend years with that person miserable. If you're with somebody where you you know you've got to get you've got to force them to open up the Bible, you've got to get them to to read the Bible, or you women, um, especially single women, if you are if you're looking for somebody and you found somebody you think and you've got to like encourage that person to open up the scriptures with you or to pray with you, ditch them, <laughs> or pray for a soul, <laughs> and say hey let's take a break and we'll see where you're at a, you know six months from now. All right, so that's not in my manuscript. It's, it's, um, but the point is here is like, man, these, men, these people were entering into this covenantal relationship with women who worshipped other gods. And he said, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Second right, Corinthians chapter 6, it will be on the screen. It says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers for, do, for, for what do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Or what does light have in common with darkness? Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? Meaning, uh, you, very little. Very little. My, my wife is from the other, uh, like we, we were born on completely opposite ends of planet Earth. Or side, sides, whatever you want to call it. So, <laughs> uh, very different cultures. Different language. I came from a broken family. She came from a very strong family unit. Uh, those first two years, I, she might even say longer than two years, it was rough. It was rough. Do you know what kept us together? The covenant that we made between one another on that day and the bond that we share in Jesus. When any time we were tempted to like, man, this is, is this worth it? Like to ask that question, is it worth keeping the, like staying in this marriage? We go back to that, to that covenant. All right. Um, third point, and this, this, I'll wrap it up. Faithfully nurture the covenant you have entered. Like if you're, Here's the encouraging news. If you're in a marriage and it is, and in your opinion, you feel like this is not a good marriage, this is a really bad marriage, that doesn't mean this is the end of your story and that this is the way you're going to live out the rest of your years in this marriage. Listen, that's what I tell people who are like on the brink of divorce, especially Christians who are like, we're ready to throw in the towel. In fact, we've thrown in the towel. We just, we just got to sign the papers. I asked them, one of the first things I asked them, I said, so let me ask you this question. Do you believe in Jesus? And both of them are like, well, of course we do. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm like, okay, yeah, great. Um, do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Well, yeah, of, of course. Do you believe that the one who died on the cross for your sins also died for the person sitting next to you for their sins? Well, well, yeah. And then what happened to Jesus after he died? 
while he was buried? Like, like very simple questions. He was in the tomb, right? Do you believe that he rose from the grave? Well, of course we believe that he rose from the grave. Then why in the world do you believe that he can't resurrect your dead marriage? Like, why would you believe that? You're talking about the God who spoke the galaxies into existence, who parted seas, raised the dead from the grave, and Jesus walked out of the tomb. Like, and for you, those of you in this room where you feel like, man, my life is such a mess, the tomb is empty, which is evidence and, and, and a promise that he can turn your life around. It might not be easy, but he can turn your life around. Like this covenant of marriage, it's serious. God considers it to be very serious. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, he, will literally, like he literally, in the New American Standard, says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with who? The wife of your youth. What was happening with these guys? So this is what was happening, ready? These men, these men were looking at these foreign women who are like, well, she's much prettier than my, my Hebrew wife. And my Hebrew wife kind of nags. Like, she's always complaining. Like, why did I spend this money on, on, uh, you know, on new tires for my bike? <laughs> I'm joking. My wife doesn't do that. Um, like, like, why? But you know, guys, um, like, what? Well, the, the woman down the street, she, at least she pays attention to me. So I smell nice. Um, she's always paying compliments to me. Who needs, who needs this relationship when I have this woman who clearly appreciates me? That's what was going on. They were divorcing the wife of their youth for, for this experience with a woman who didn't even worship the same God that they worshiped or claim to worship. Why does God take marriage so seriously? Ephesians chapter 5 says, a man shall leave his father and mother, like Paul's quoting Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And he says this, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that this covenant of marriage points to something greater. Uh, sex that's to be enjoyed in the context of a covenant relationship with God points to something greater. And, and, and to chase after sex and to chase after a relationship, what it does, I know this is going to sound harsh, but it's true, what it indicates is that you love the experience of sex or you love that person more than you love God as your father. Or you trust your own judgment that you know what's best for you than the God who made you in his image. And the good news is that you can turn from that and you can surrender your life to Jesus. Like, it's not too late to repent. Like, here, here's the thing. This is, this is why Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 is so good. It's such good news. Like, there is no sin that is so great that God's grace cannot overcome because we see that with the life of Jesus who lived the life that we can never live and he died a death that we all deserve. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. I'll, I'll repeat Richard Gaffin's quote again. At the core of your being, in the deepest recesses of what you are, Christian, in your inner self, you will never be more resurrected than you already are. Amen? And so that is good news. That is good news. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Your sanctification. He wants to mold and shape you more and more into the image of his son. Why? 
because he's not about killing your joy. He wants to maximize your joy. He wants to maximize your joy. And I'm going to leave you so the worship team can come up. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Um, and let's, let's stand. As the worship team comes up, let's, let's stand. And Now I'm going to read this first, and then if you believe it, I'd like for us to read it together as though we really believe it. If the Spirit of Him... Here, I, I'm going to read it. I want you to hear it. Well, I had a professor who said, let's read the text or the Scripture. Let it settle on your heart for a moment. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, most of you said that was true of you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about that. Now let's read it together. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, the first step towards life that you need to take is a step towards Jesus in faith, believing that he died the death that you deserved, he rose on the third day, and to have it placing your faith and trust in that, you can be born again, that you can know the God of all creation as your Father and be reconciled to him. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.